Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Good evening, all. I'm Debbie, and it's a privilege to bring the Word of God to you tonight. And we're reading from James chapter 2, just the first uh, half of the chapter. My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in the scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. But mercy triumphs over judgment. And that is the word of the Lord. opportunity to speak tonight and it's good to be here amongst fellow believers. Well the topic before us tonight is from James 2 is favouritism. Verse 1, my brothers, keep your Bibles open right, keep it open on your phone because we want to have a look at it. You've got to check what I say is right. My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Or verse 9, if you show favouritism you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So the topic is favouritism. It's pretty strange, isn't it? When lots of us are here tonight, we carry huge loads. We've got what we think are more important issues, but I hope that uh, you'll see that what God says to us is helpful and deep and liberating and necessary. The book of James, and I understand you're working through James, okay, this is where we're up to, it's all about wisdom. But rather than calling this talk being wise about favouritism, instead I've called it being wise about mercy. The reason being that although James begins talking about favouritism in verse 1, by verse 13 at the end, he's wanting us to be wise to mercy and they are connected. If you're wise to mercy guess what? You won't show favouritism. Okay? 
Now, to get into the issue, I want to begin by asking some questions. First up, if we're wondering why James raises this topic in the first place, it's worth asking, what are the two constants that we're always having to deal with in life? Well, the first is trials and difficulties. They are always there, but they can easily become times of temptation for us to think less about God. God is against me when he isn't. God doesn't care when he does. God must be evil when in fact he's good. And that's why in chapter 1, James begins by saying, what we need is wisdom, which God gives to everyone who asks him. We need wisdom from above. But to get that wisdom, we need to listen to what God's saying in the Bible. And you and I know that real listening, deep listening to God's word isn't automatic. My guess is you covered this last week. Deep listening is a moral activity. We've got to rid our lives of filth if we're going to listen to the word of God. Uh, it requires intention, sustained commit commitment, you know, remembering, not forgetting, and doing. And if we do all that, we'll really listen and God will give us a new wisdom and a new perspective on our trials, which will make us even rejoice in spite of them. Okay? So the first constant we're always dealing with is trials and difficulties, and we have to assess them with the wisdom of faith, which the Bible gives us. And similarly, with the second constant in our lives, and that is people. People. We're always dealing with people. People in your family, people at work, people at school, people we come across in the course of the day. Some people are known to us, others are complete strangers. We come across people who are very similar to us, people who are completely different, including people at church. And of all the people in our lives, James says, similarly, we must assess them with faith, not face. And I say that because when James says believers in the Lord Jesus must not show favoritism, literally, he says believers in the Lord Jesus must not receive others according to their face, right? Their externals. He's saying we must assess people, treat people according to the wisdom that comes through faith, not the wisdom of their face or how they look towards us. Now, that is different to what we naturally do. When we naturally assess people, often we get it wrong. Sometimes we fear them. Sometimes we overly honour them and we fawn over them. Sometimes we dislike them. Sometimes we envy them. Sometimes we ignore them. Sometimes we show them preferential treatment. James says, guess what? We can't do that. We can't be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and show favoritism by treating people according to their face. The problem is, of course, that we do it. And that's why so often in our interactions we are confused. It's why sometimes we exalt people inappropriately and we diminish others inappropriately because we assess them according to their face, not according to faith. Second question. In how many ways does favoritism work? Well, the answer is thousands. We can treat people preferentially because of how they look or according to their age or according to how much money they have or 
how much money we think they have or don't have or how friendly they are or how powerful they are or how well-spoken they are or what lingo they have or what accent they have or what school they went to or didn't go to or how similar they are to us because we've got no problem loving people who are similar to us but it's much harder to love people who are different to us and the treatment can go both ways. One person can meet a powerful person and fawn over them. Someone else might meet the same person and attack them. You might meet an older person and envy them. You might meet an older person and despise them. Or a younger person, right? So favouritism works in zillions of ways. Third question, why does showing favouritism matter? What's the real issue? In verse 4, James says, it matters because when you show favoritism, you discriminate among yourselves, you become judgmental, wrongly looking down upon some, with a thinking that James says is evil, and which is why it's so destructive to fellowship. Or verse 6, showing favoritism insults the poor, whereas God never insults the poor. And showing favoritism elevates the rich who God often brings down. Throughout the Bible, you might have noticed God repeatedly lifts up the humble poor and God repeatedly brings down the rich, which means if in church we relate to one another in a way that exalts the rich at the expense of the poor, we act against the gospel. Or then in verse 9, showing favoritism breaks Jesus' law and therefore is a sin against people and against Jesus. And then in verse 12, if we show favoritism, we need to remember that we ourselves are going to be assessed and judged. God has put new life in us and we will be assessed and judged by it. So all of that means it matters and you and I need wisdom. And it would be good if after our formal time today, each of us would say a silent prayer, asking God for his wisdom about favoritism, which in the end means give me wisdom about showing mercy. So now very quickly, and we're going to step through four brief points of wisdom that God gives us. Here they are, ready? Remember God's son. Remember God's mercy. Remember God's command. And remember God's judgment. Remember God's son, God's mercy, God's command, God's judgment. First of all, in verses 1 to 4, remember God's son. James anchors his instruction in the one we believe in. He says, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does he say it like that? James, who was James? James was Jesus' younger brother, his half-brother. Because remember, Jesus was God incarnate, the father, right? Mary. But James had not given, given Jesus any glory growing up. James was not one of the 12 disciples. There were another two Jameses who were within the 12, so we get confused. There was James, the son of Alphaeus, and James, the son of Zebedee. But they weren't this James. This James was James, the son of Joseph, Jesus' father, uh, stepfather, right? So James was Jesus' half-brother. And most likely inferring from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it wasn't until Jesus had risen from the dead and James saw Jesus in his glory. Imagine what a recalibration that would have been. Oh my goodness, 
my, my big brother is the Messiah. All right, it wasn't until that moment that James realised that his older half-brother was glorious, the glorious Lord, the glorious Saviour King. Now, why does James mention this? Because a deep understanding of Jesus' glory quickly changes how you see other people. So if you're growing in your appreciation of Jesus' glory, you'll understand what a significant thing it was for him to lay it all aside so that he could go to the cross and die for the people of the world. And if we're beginning to understand just a bit the enormity of that sacrifice for someone who has been so glorious, then we'll value the people for whom he died, you see? And that changes everything. It changes how you look at people, changes how you judge them, changes how you look at poor people, unattractive people, disabled people, children, the elderly, whoever it is that you're tempted to look down when you assess them by their face, right? Because suddenly you'll see if Jesus who is glorious did that for them, each person is of immense value. And we recalibrate how we see people in the light of how Jesus sees them. And it also works the other way. Think of the people you're tempted to favour, the rich, the powerful, the impressive, the good-looking. Maybe they're people like you. Maybe they're people very different to you. If you have a growing appreciation of Jesus' immense glory as Lord and Christ, then that relativizes what you see in other people. Okay, um, a physical illustration. Think of the size of the sun. Our planet, the planet Earth, is big. It took my daughter 36 hours to get from here to her digs in Reims, or however you say it, if you're French. Um, France, I don't know. Sounds like someone just sneezed, doesn't it? Um, sorry if you're French. Uh, <laughs> Think of the size of the sun, right? Our planet is big, but it's nothing compared to the size of the sun. In fact, it would take 1.3 million planet Earths to fill up the sun. But of course, the sun is only a medium star in the universe. The largest star so far discovered has the great name of U.Y. Scuti. It has a radius 1,700 times that of the sun. It is so large that it would take 5 billion suns to fit inside it. And here we are on planet Earth thinking that the sun is pretty big and glorious, but not when you compare it to something that's superly glorious. James saw Jesus as superly glorious. Can you see how, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, how ridiculous it would be to show favouritism to one person because of the face that they present to us? So the first point is to remember God's Son. The second point is to remember God's mercy. Verses 5 to 8. The mercy of the Lord is completely upside down to the world's standards. The world says mercy should be shown to the deserving and then it applies its own criteria. Uh, criteria. Now, you'll remember this time at school. Two team captains get to pick who they want to be on the team. 
You all remember this, right, don't you? You know, the pain, the social crucifixion you went through at those times. They get to pick who they'll be merciful to. Who do they pick? The popular, the attractive, the athletic, the winners. Who, who would the... I'm not going to ask who were the last people. <laughs> it was me, right? <laughs> it was me. Um, this is completely the opposite of what the Lord does. So instead of choosing those who are rich in the eyes of the world, God chooses the poor to save those that the world judges poor. He picks those the world would not pick. I want you to imagine mercy shown to someone was a substance. Here's what the world does. It grabs a, a, a sieve, a strainer, colander or something, and strains it out, mercy. And it just gives out just a few grains. That's not mercy. What did Shakespeare say? Do you remember Shakespeare? Right? Do you remember doing The Merchant of Venice? Hands up if you did The Merchant of Venice. Oh, this, this will work for two people. Excellent. <laughs> okay, education, literary education here. Okay, ready? Shakespeare said in The Merchant of Venice, well, actually it was Portia, said the quality of mercy is not strained. Do you remember that? Well done. Okay. What he's saying is mercy isn't strained out in a sieve and distributed in granular amounts to people who seem deserving. Mercy is something you pour out as a lump sum to the undeserving. There's a story that came out of the Napoleonic Wars where a deserter from, the, from Napoleon's army was caught and he was brought before Napoleon who ordered him to be shot. Now, thankfully, that man's mum was there. I don't know why his mum was there. Who knows? Maybe she thought he'd do it. Uh, who knows? Anyway, but she begged and pleaded for mercy. And Napoleon said he doesn't deserve mercy. And she came back and said, if he did, it wouldn't be mercy. I don't know what happened to him, but she had a very good point. <laughs> God's choice as to who he shows mercy to is not always to people let me get it right. God's choice as to who he shows mercy to is not always to people who don't deserve it. That's right. Not in his eyes. Not in the world's eyes. God shows people mercy to people who don't deserve it. Doesn't he? That's right. That's you and me, right? Why is it that church is full of odd bods? I mean, you look nice, but <laughs> if I got to know you... It is God's delight, that's why. He is delighted that he should gather together a group of people who don't fit. In other words, church is not full of people who can walk around and boast about themselves and say, aren't I great, aren't I impressive, wasn't God right to choose me? <laughs> church is full of people who say, I'm astounded that God chose me because I wouldn't if I was him. But he did. God is a God who's rich in grace and mercy. He chooses the poor, particularly the poor in spirit. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. What's he mean? He said, blessed are those who mourn. You know, who mourn over their sin. Who realise then they haven't got it. They're not right. Before, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I need a righteousness beyond me. I haven't got it. I'm poor. Blessed are those, he said. 
James said, guess what? If that's you, if you're the poor, if you see yourself in the poor and you're wise to God's mercy, then the last thing you'll do in church is to say to the rich person, oh, you take the best seat and to the poor person, you sit at the back. If you're wise to mercy, you won't do that. Especially when you know that God hears, the, hears those who cry out to him and most often, guess what, they are the poor in the world. Ten years ago, I was in India and I got to see this. There was a team from Trinity Churches and we were teaching pastors and their wives, um, the massive church planting movement happening in India. I think we were working with an organisation that, that there were 60,000 churches that had begun in villages around, often with people, pastors with no theological education, so we were going over to teach them. And... Um, in Salem, south of Bangalore in central India, we, they had a compound and we were shown around. It was a sta staggering work. Um, it served poor people literally from the cradle to the grave. There were school boarding houses, one for boys, one for girls. There were training facilities when people graduated from school. There were businesses to go into. There was an, even an oncology ward and a palliative care centre, which is staggering for a Hindu culture that believes in reincarnation and that what, what you suffer in life is because of what you deserve, right? But they showed mercy to people. It was an amazing place. And I was blown away when I saw all of it. So I asked them, look, how many of these kids who get dropped off here and enter your orphanage end up converted? And they said, oh, 100%. Well... When I looked amazed, they said, look, you have to understand, these, these children are from the lowest caste, the Dalits. In Hindu society, they're the sewer cleaners, they're the garbage collectors. And in Hindu society, they are locked in. You can't get out of that caste. You're always treated as slaves. But in the gospel of Jesus, they hear that their creator loves them. And so much so that he gave up his glorious son for them to win an eternal inheritance which they will share with the Lord Jesus himself. No wonder 100% conversion, right? No one else is saying that to them, right? No wonder the gospel has traction with the poor. In the first century in which James was writing, in the Roman Empire, scholars estimate between 10 and 20% of, of all people in the Roman Empire were slaves, they were poor, they were oppressed, they were needy. But when they heard the gospel, they accepted it. And so within the early church were many who were slaves or, or former slaves, but also, of course, were many who were wealthy, some who were wealthy, and had slaves themselves and were used to ignoring them or looking down on them or even mistreating them because that's what masters could do. Now, we may not have slaves today here, but and around the world, of course, slavery is a big issue. But you see here that there will be clear application for us at church in terms of how we welcome newcomers who are different to us and also in how we relate to each other as church members. Do you go out of your way to speak to people that you think are odd and different to you? Or do you get out of their way so that you don't have to? Do we assess people according to their face or according to our faith, which holds that God favours those who don't easily fit in? 
you know, I hope your church is regarded as a welcoming church. It seems to me, you know, I'm, I'm not here every Sunday, right? But, you know, I get whispers. And, um, but is it welcoming to people who have come once, twice, three times, but then a few months in, when they're no longer the unfamiliar face, but they're still lonely and looking for friends? How do, how do you go then? We have an issue at our church. Um, would you, for example, if you could, invite them out to pizza at Stirling Pub or to your home? Okay, so first point of wisdom, remember God's son. Second, remember God's mercy. Third, remember God's commandment, verses 8 to 11. And here James quotes the command of Jesus who told us to love our neighbour as ourself, although Jesus wasn't the first one to say that. Did you know that? When Jesus said it, he was quoting the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.18. It's very easy to remember, right? What year did the First World War finish? 1918. That was a good year, right? What's a good verse? Love your neighbour as yourself. Now you can remember it. Okay. <laughs> Jesus quoted it and endorsed it, and this becomes to us a royal law, therefore a command from our king. In other words, if Christ is your Lord, this is not optional. It's a command from the king. We don't have a choice about doing it. He's given us a command that forces us to think and this forces us to ask, if I was in their shoes, what would be the loving thing that I would want done to me? And then to decide that's what I'm going to try and do for them. Now, if that's what God required his people in the Old Testament to do, how much more should New Testament believers do the same? Because we have had Jesus show us what love looks like and he has poured his spirit into us to help us do exactly that. You know, you can't love your neighbour if we only ever think, what do I want to do? This command is positive, it's proactive, it's intentional, it forces us to think beyond ourselves. Um, the morality of the world says, I am good because I am not harming other people. You know, you'll have met people like this, maybe you've said it yourself, I'm good because I never hurt anyone. Jesus' command is not just don't do harm, it's much more proactive than that, it's do good to others. It's different, right? He says you've got to love them. Now, to the person who says, no, as long as I do no harm to others, I can still play favourites and still be a moral person, James says, guess what? No, you can't. He says in verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you're doing right. But if you play favourites, you sin. You've broken the law. You've shot a hole in your canoe. It only takes one hole to sink a canoe. And even though you may not have harmed someone by murdering them, even though you haven't harmed someone by committing adultery, if you've showed favouritism, you've broken the commandment to love. You've shot a hole in your canoe. You're guilty of not following Jesus' command. James's instruction that we not show favouritism comes from the command given to us from Jesus himself, a command given to us as our king. It's not optional. So that's the third point of wisdom. Remember God's command. And the last point from verses 12 to 13 is remember God's judgment. 
Okay. Now, it's not as if the believer's destination is unsure. That's settled. Christ died for us. We will be with him. But it does mean that your reward will be settled for the stewardship of the life that we've been given. I'll say it again. It's not as if our final destination needs settling because God in his mercy has already settled that through Jesus' death on the cross. But what will be settled for believers on the day of judgment is our reward for what we've done as his children in the life he's shown us and empowered us to live. James says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. That is the command to love your neighbour as yourself. He says it's a freeing command. It's, why is it freeing? It's freeing because it's not narrow, right? It's not specific. It's very broad in its application. It doesn't specify limits. It's general enough to allow us to think and to apply freely as we move through life each day. And it's freeing because in obeying it, we live the lives that God meant us to live. And because of Christ, we can obey it without worrying about punishment because in Christ God swapped us with his mercy and when he comes, he'll find us washed clean by Christ and we will be able, uh, Christ will be able to see the fruit of mercy in our lives. What if there's no fruit at all? Well, if we fail to treat people with mercy, if all there is when the Lord looks at our lives on the day of judgment is favoritism and disregard for people different to us who need love, then that, when you think about it, would indicate that we have never been impacted by God's mercy for us at all. And so we get to the end. We need wisdom about people because people are a constant in our lives and in dealing with people, instead of assessing them according to their face and playing favourites, he's given us four points of wisdom. The wisdom that comes from faith. Number one, remember God's son. He is glorious, not others. Number two, remember God's mercy. How he answered us when we were poor and called out for help. Number three, remember God's command to love like Jesus loved. Think of what, thinking of what others needed and doing it. And number four, remember God's judgment. Each day is a chance to live a life that is shaped by mercy and love. If those four points are too much to remember as you leave, then take home the four words that James finishes with and dwell on them. Have a look, verse 13. What does he say? It sums it up, really. How do you be wise to favoritism? Understanding this, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Because the better we grasp the mercy that God has shown us, the better we'll be able to show love instead of favoritism. Okay. Father in heaven... May our confession of Christ as Lord not be superficial but deep. Give us an integrated life where increasingly we understand our poverty 
the mercy you've shown us, the glory of Jesus and how he loved people who were way below him. And Father, help us, therefore, to love as he loved us. Help us to have a great regard for Christ as our King and to do what he says and remember that whilst you've secured our future, our lives will still be on show before you. And so we pray, give us that grace, that understanding of mercy, that we would not show favouritism, but in fact welcome and treat one another as you treated us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.